0: Well, this morning we're starting a new series called Identity, and we have been praying and processing and just thinking through this series for some time, and and we're bringing in a number of different speakers for this series, and and we just trust that God wants to do an incredible thing during these next few weeks. You all know that identity is not something that's new. You know, we 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 are constantly against this, the face of identity. For example, if you want to travel anywhere, you're going to need to take your identification papers with you. If, let's say this afternoon, you're like, hey, let's go to Detroit. Uh, You're going to do what we would do. We're going to double-check, 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 double-check almost all the way to the border just to make sure we have our identification papers with us because you know that if you get over there and you don't have your ID with you, you're not going to Detroit unless you get really, really, really lucky and those chances are getting slimmer and slimmer. But here's what happens. You show up at the border there, and the customs officer here asks you, you know, what are you, who are you, all these kind of things. And then they take your identification papers to make sure that you are who you say you are. Because you could go up there and you could say anything. I am so-and-so, and, and they, wouldn't, they wouldn't know. They don't know you personally. And so these identification papers, they are a way of you proving that you are who you say you are. Now let's just say you're on your way to Detroit, and you're in a really big hurry to get to Detroit, and suddenly you have, you know, some lights blinking behind you, and here comes this kind, loving police officer, and and one of the first things he's going to want to know from you is, can I see some ID? License and registration, please, if they say please. And you're going to have to hand over your piece of ID again to say, here is who I am, this is who I am, and here's proof that this is who I am. If you want to go to the bank, get this, you want to go to the bank and give them your money, they still want you to prove that you are who you are. It's like, my goodness, if I didn't, you know, if I wasn't who I wasn't, I wouldn't give you my money. If I wasn't who I said I wasn't, why would I trust you with my money? But they still want your ID. Because they want to make sure that they know who you are. If you get married, before you can get married, you need a piece of identification paper to get the license and to get all the registration forms and stuff like that. They want to know who your mother's 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 mother is, you know, because this is important. They need to know all the details of who you are. If you go to the hospital, they want your ID. You get in there and you can be basically dying and they're going to ask you for what? Where's your health card? We need to know who you are. Identification papers and identification, you know, things, uh, documents like our ID cards or um, health cards, driver's license, passports, all these are a form of identification that says, this is proof that I am who I say I am. We're not surprised by this because we've grown up in the society where you're you're constantly having to prove your identity. You're constantly having to say, here is a a document that proves who I am. But these documents, although they prove who you are, these documents do not say everything about you. So I got a document that says that I am a Canadian citizen, that my name is... Isaac, yes, Isaac Unger, on my documents, spelled with a K, some with a C, and some other, other ones spelt with a Ike. So I, I'm really, I get a lot of looks sometimes when I hand in all my documents. They're like, are you Isaac with a C or Isaac with a K, or what's this one here saying, Ike? I don't know. I, I am, you know, I just like to confuse people. And so that's me. But these documents, they may say who you are as far as your name and stuff like that. But that's not all that there is to you. Sometimes we're also defined by what we do. You may say, well, I am a carpenter. And, and for myself, I would say, I'm a pastor. I'm a husband. I'm a father. All these things, they are part of defining who I am. These, you know, when you hear, oh, he's a pastor or he's a, you know, a mechanic, immediately there's, there's a bit of an identification that is attached to a title like that. But that again is not all that is to us. We're not just a document. We're not just, you know, a proof on piece of paper. We're not just a title that someone's given us or something that we're interested in. There's more to us than just those things. It's actually a very small part of who we are. None of these things that I've just talked about define our belief system. And I want to suggest to you today that our belief system largely determines who we are. So this is true for everyone in this room, whether you are a Christian or not. Every single one of us in this room, we have a belief system. There's something that made you do what you did today. There's something that made you not do what you didn't do yesterday. There's something that has told you how to behave. There's something that has told you things to do and not to do. It's our belief system. So our belief system largely determines who we are. So if my belief system says that I can do this or this, I'm going to go and do those things. If my belief system says I can't do this or this, I'm not going to do those things because ultimately what I believe, my belief system determines what I do and ultimately who I am. So as a Christian, myself, as a Christian, I have decided to base my belief system on the Word of God. I've taken the Word of God, and I've read it, I've studied it, I've heard it preached, and I've said that what the Bible says is what I'm going to believe. And so ultimately, that makes me a Christian. I say I'm a Christian because I believe these things. My Christianity guides my belief system. So then we have to ask the question, then what is a Christian? What do we mean by being a Christian? So the question is, if I say, you are, if you, I ask you, who are you, and you say, well, I'm a Christian, or what do you believe, I'm a Christian, well, then the ultimate question is, then, what is a Christian? Who are you in Christ? If I'm going to determine who I am, based on Scripture, and based on Jesus, we have to ask the question, then, well, then, who are you, and what are you in Jesus? So the biggest question we have to then ask, her is, ask is, what is a Christian? See, I've, I've come up to, against people sometimes where I say to them, okay, so what is a Christian? Tell me, if I was to uh, you know, directly ask you to define what a Christian is, I am always amazed how many people have trouble with this question. They say, well, I'm a Christian, but I, I kind of have trouble defining it. I kind of have trouble saying exactly what it is, and, and they wrestle with it. And yet we say, well, I'm a Christian. So you need to be able to say, well, if you're a Christian, and if your life is based on Christ, then explain it. So here's the question. What is a Christian? I'm going to give you a very simplistic answer. There's obviously much more to it than just this. But summarizing kind of all things, here here is my very simple answer for us today. A Christian is someone who has fully surrendered to Jesus. A Christian is someone who has fully surrendered to Jesus. Acts chapter 2 verse 4 to 12 and 13, we see a beautiful example of this. Peter speaking, it says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven, given to men, by which we must be saved. So Peter saying, you can't be saved by anything other than Jesus. So full surrender to Jesus, is the only way to be saved. So what is a Christian, is someone who has fully surrendered to Jesus, in order to be saved by Jesus. But the verse isn't done there, because what Peter wants to make sure, is, what the, Luke, the author, wants to make sure is that we don't just know the answer to these things, we also know how it impacts our lives. It goes on, because Peter and John are before the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, and they're angry at them for preaching, and they're saying, don't ever preach this again, and, and Peter basically comes up with this argument, well, salvation is found in no one else but Jesus, so how else are we going to live our lives if we can't express Jesus? But then Luke goes on and he says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. What astonished these Sadducees? What astonished these Pharisees? It wasn't how well Peter and John were able to explain what they believed. It wasn't that they were able to say, well, we are Christians because we believe in Jesus. We are Christians because we have given our lives to Jesus. What astonished these men was the courage of Peter and John. And they immediately made the connection between the courage of these two men and their relationship with Jesus. So our relationship with Jesus Christ, when we say that we fully surrender to Jesus in order to receive him, in order to be Christians, what we're saying with that is that it is more than just knowledge. It is more than just, you know, saying certain words. It means living our lives courageously for him. So that when people see us, they will immediately make the connection, the association. The way this person lives is obviously connected to who Jesus is. That's what was astonishing to these Pharisees and these Sadducees. So then we have to ask this question. If fully surrendering to Jesus is what saves us, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Because if he is the one that all things kind of hinge on, who is he? If he is the only one who can save you, if he's the one that you should find your identity in, well, who is he? For this, I want you to open your Bibles. I'm not putting the words up on the screen. I want you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We are going to look through a theologically thick passage today, and I am not going to be able to do justice to it, but we will do our best. This passage has some incredible things uh, for us on who Jesus is. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15. Here's what Paul says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul starts this section off and he says, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over over all creation. Now Paul doesn't mess around with words here at all. He goes right to it. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. I am convinced this morning that if you and I will let this one little verse sink deep into our hearts, the rest of the picture will become much more clear to us. We need to understand right from the get-go how awesome, how majestic, how amazing, how powerful and glorious Jesus Christ truly is. I think sometimes the image that we have of Jesus is the Jesus here on earth, the Jesus who died on the cross, the, the Jesus who was covered in you know so, um, the, the marks from after he was beating. That's the image we often have of Jesus. But Paul said he is the image of the invisible God. What does Paul mean by these, this word, image? That Jesus is the image of God. We read in Genesis chapter, you know, uh, chapter 2 that we are created in the image of God. So is Paul saying here that Jesus is merely created like we are created? Is Paul saying, well, you were created, you know, humanity was created in the image of God, and Jesus is also just created in the image of God in that same way? No, not at all. The word that Paul uses here, the word image, is a very unique word. It is only used six times in the Greek New Testament. The word expresses two different ideas. One is the is likeness. That he is the likeness. And the other word is the manifestation. What Paul is trying to teach the Colossians is that Jesus is the visible image of an invisible God. God is invisible and therefore we can't see him, but we can see Jesus, the one who lived among, lived and moved among us for 33 years. He, Jesus, is the exact representation of all that God is. So God, we can't see him, but we were able to see Jesus. We were able to see how he lived. We were able to see the way he he did things and we were able to see all these things in Jesus and Paul is saying that Jesus is the visib- is God visible to us this is why it's so important that we accept that Jesus came in the flesh while he was here on earth Jesus was fully God and he was fully man he was fully human had Jesus not been fully human we would not have he would not have been able to make God visible to us we would have still never been able to fully see who God is and what God is. Jesus showed us what God is like. For example, we say, God is love. Well, we we could know that, and we could hear that, and we could say, well, but what does that mean to us? How is God love? How does God love? Well, then you go to Jesus, and you see how Jesus loved people. And so God who is invisible, becomes visible through Jesus, because through Jesus, God shows us what His love is like. It's unconditional. It's for everyone. God is love. Well, what does that mean? Well, look at Jesus and look at how He loved people. And then we have a much clearer image of what God's love is like. You and I both know that we can hear tons and tons of sermons on love. But they will never even begin to compare to being loved. You can hear every sermon you've ever heard on love, but until you have fully experienced and felt love, only then do you really know what it's like. We can bring in the most educated, educated scholars and have them expound the finest points of compassion and tell us everything that there is about compassion, but they will never compare to feeling compassion until someone expresses compassion to you. And in a sense, that's what Jesus did. We can hear and we can learn all that we can learn about God, and we can study him, study him, but until Jesus came into this world and dwelled among us, humanity did not really have a sense of what God is like. But now, in Jesus, we see the invisible God because God made him visible through Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says this, the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus, the son, the exact representation of God. If you want to know the heart of God, all you have to do is get to know the heart of Jesus. If you want to know the heart of Jesus, all you got to do is read the Gospels and see how Jesus lived with people. If you want to know the love of God, you want to know the patience of God, the kindness of God, look at Jesus. Because Jesus is the exact representation of who God is. All of God's attributes are wrapped up in Jesus. Let's continue reading. Verse 16. I want you, as we read this, I want you to listen to words that are repeated. Phrases that are said over and over. Because Paul makes a number of statements over and over. He uses some words many, many times in these next few verses. Verse 16, for by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You get this idea very quickly that Paul is saying, guess what? Jesus is a pretty big deal. When God sent Jesus into this world, it was a pretty big deal because all things are created by Him and all things are held together by Him. They were made for Him and by Him. Verse 18. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead so that in everything He might have, supremacy now this last part of this verse he is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead it kind of raises some questions well what what does that mean the word beginning comes from the same word family as rulers in verse 16 and it probably carries the same idea jesus is at the beginning of or the ruler over god's new creation the church okay so jesus is the beginning of god's new creation God's church. Firstborn among the dead is a metaphor for Jesus' resurrection. The purpose clause that follows is that in everything he might have supremacy. This articulates another result of God's positive verdict of Jesus' mission here in the empty tomb. The word the NIV uh, translates supremacy from comes from the word uh, word family as first. And the focus of the and the purpose, the focus pur, purpose of God's new creation, to rank Christ as most important over all things. So here God has said, "I'm going to send Jesus, and in Him will be my fullness. In Him I will create everything. Through Him I have created. In Him through through Him I have created all things, and in Him all things are held together. He is the birth of the new." church verse 19 for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross simple question What have we done so far? Here's this beautiful description of what Jesus has done. Here's this beautiful description of what God has done through Jesus. So the question is, what have we done so far? What has humanity done so far? And the answer is absolutely nothing. So God has made Jesus to be the one who has supremacy over all things. And Paul hasn't even mentioned us yet. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 to 11 says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Under Jesus, or in Jesus, all things are held together, and every knee will bow in recognition That Jesus Christ is over all things. So where do we come in? Verse 21. Paul says this. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. It's kind of an interesting way to bring us into it, right? So he's saying, here's how amazing Jesus is and here's all the things that Jesus has done. And then he says to the Colossian church, and remember you, You were alienated from God. You were enemies in your own minds because of your evil behavior. Our thinking and our mindset was so wicked that we couldn't even save ourselves through our thoughts. We may have thought, well, if I do this, or if I do this, or if I do this, maybe somehow that will save me. But our thinking was corrupted by our behavior, and we could not even think in a godly way. Then comes the big contrast. Verse 22. But now, but now, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through the death. Through death. Let me read that again. But now, he, God, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you how? Some of you are going to find this difficult to believe. How does God now view you through the, eye, or through the lens of Jesus? He has reconciled you, God has reconciled you through Christ's death. So that when God looks at you through the lens of Jesus, what does he see? He sees you holy in his sight. Without blemish and free from accusation. That when God looks at you through the lens of Jesus and being reconciled through Jesus, God sees you as holy in His sight, without blemish, and free, from accusation. Now that didn't get anything in this room, but that should have got a whole lot of applause in this room because there is nothing that you and I can do to save ourselves. Everything that should be done and everything that could be done to save us has been done through Jesus Christ. And now when God looks at you because you say, I identify with Jesus, I have fully surrendered to Jesus. And now when God looks at you through the lens of Jesus, He sees you as blameless, without blemish, and free of accusation. Nothing we could have ever done. Nothing we ever did in ourselves. It was all through Jesus. But some of you are going to jump immediately to the next verse and say, "Ah, ah, ah!" ah. But look, if you continue in your faith, establish and firm, not move from the hope held out in the gospel. That this is the gospel that you have heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and to which I, Paul, have become a servant. Some of you are going to immediately jump to that verse and say, yeah, but only if I do certain things. Let me poke at you a little bit this morning. I think far too many Christians think that their faith is about them. Far too many Christians believe that they will save themselves. We would never say that. Oh, Jesus saved me if I do these things. See, it says right here, if I continue in my faith. If I stand firm, if I am established. But listen to what Paul says. He says, I have become his servant to this gospel, that Jesus has done all things to that gospel. I have become a servant. So how do you then remain Faithful. How do you then stand firm? Listen to what Paul says in verse 29. To this end I labor, struggling with all His enemy, energy, which so powerfully works in me. Here is a truth that you may not like. You cannot please Jesus without Jesus. You cannot live for Jesus without Jesus. There is nothing that you and I can do that we cannot, that we have there's nothing that you and I can't, can do that does not first have to come through Christ. You and I, we do not have it within ourselves to please God. It is only done through Jesus. So Here's a little takeaway that I want you to go with. You cannot do for you what only Jesus will do in you. You cannot do for you what only Jesus will do in you. God took Jesus and gave him supremacy. And God said that under Jesus are all things. There is no sin that you can commit. There is no action that you've ever done. There's nothing that is not under the authority of Jesus. And then God says that if you accept and fully surrender to him, then I will view you through the lens of Jesus. So I want to leave you with a couple of closing thoughts. In Scripture, we see that we, in Christ, we have a new creation. God has given us freedom. Paul's going to come up and just play for us, just to kind of set the mood a little bit. In Scripture, we see that God is, that in Jesus, we have been made secure. In Scripture, we see that God, through Jesus, has given us a new life. So here's a thought I want you to just wrestle with a little bit. Who in Scripture first fully recognized who Jesus was? In Scripture, who first fully recognized who Jesus was? Now you might be tempted to say, well, it was Peter, because Peter said, you are the Christ. The answer may actually surprise you. The first ones to recognize Jesus for who he truly was were demons Mark chapter 1 verse 24 the demon says to Jesus what do you want with us Jesus of Nazareth have you come to destroy us i know who you are the holy one of god and James chapter 2 verse 19 James tells us that the that the devil knows that there is one God and he shudders. And so even though the devil knows this and even though the demons knew who Jesus was, it changed nothing. And sometimes we as Christians, we want to consume information. We want to know, we want to know, we want to know. But people are never astonished by who or how we live in making a connection to Jesus. Because too many Christians only know And it never turns into a lifestyle. To fully surrender to Jesus is to say, I will do more than just know that Jesus is the only way. I will do more than just know that I need to fully surrender my life to Jesus. I will live my life in such a way that people will see that I have fully surrendered my life to Him. And they will be astonished. You and I are tempted every single day to try to save ourselves. And we do. I sit with people, and say, what is a Christian? And the first thing I usually get is a list of all the things that we don't do. Well, Christians don't do this, and Christians don't do this, and Christians don't do this. And so if I don't do all those things, now I have a measuring rod to say, there, I'm saved. But being a Christian... Is about being surrendered to Jesus. Being a Christian is about saying, God, you have your way in my life. Jesus, you are above all things. In you, all things hold together. And I now surrender myself to your power and to your purpose and to your plan in my life, recognizing that there is nothing in me that I can do to save me. Another thought I have for you is what if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior? What if right now you're sitting here and you are still alienated from God? The good news for you is this that Jesus wants to reconcile you to God. Jesus wants to reconcile you to God. And as you saw in the passages before, Jesus has already done everything. That in Jesus, God has accomplished everything that he needs to accomplish. All you need to do now is turn your life over to him and say, Jesus, I surrender. Your identity as a Christian is found only in Jesus. It is never in what we do. We cannot save ourselves. And I think in these next few weeks as we go through this series, some of you are going to be challenged hard. Because we are so tempted to save ourselves. We are so tempted to be able to do certain things so that we can have a measuring rod and say, by this I know I'm saved. Jesus is the only one who can save you. my prayer has been and whether you are a first-time person who's going to say, I surrender to Jesus, my prayer has been that you would do that today. My prayer has also been if you've been a Christian for a long time, but you've always kind of held your Christian life in your own hands, you made the decisions, you made the rules, I'm asking and I've been praying that God would somehow break you today and say, no, it is only Jesus who has authority in my life. And I will fully surrender to him. Recognizing that only Jesus has the supremacy over all things. So who's in charge of you? I'm going to make it awkward in here if it's not already if you've never invited Jesus Christ in your heart if you've never surrendered to him would you do it right now? just right now right where you are you say I surrender I surrender I'm no longer going to be in charge I'm not the one who could forgive me I'm not the one who could give me life I'm not the one who could make me secure. I'm not the one who can make me a new creation. Only Jesus can do that. So Jesus right now, I recognize that only you can do for me what I need done. So I surrender Jesus. If you are a Christian in here, and you're maybe thinking maybe, yeah. Maybe I've taken this a little bit too much upon myself. And I try to decide how to live my life. I'm asking you to do the same thing. Again, to just go before God and say, God, Jesus, I surrender. I'm not going to take charge of my life anymore. I'm going to let you be in charge of my life. But I want you to do more than just know this. Because the temptation for all of us right now is to say, I know. I want people to be astonished by you. And they will say, they've been with Jesus. Because they fully surrendered to him. Amen? (laughs) Heads up. We're not being whipped. God loves you. God has a plan for you. Some of you don't get it. Some of you don't get it. I can see that. I'm sorry, but I'm going to call it out. Some of you don't get it right now. Because you are so sure that you've got it. It's all about you. You don't have supremacy over anything, only Jesus does. And I'm asking you today, as your pastor and as your friend, To surrender. To surrender. Whether it's for the first time in your life, or whether you need to say, God, somehow I've made this about me again. I surrender. You, Jesus, are the only one who gives me my identity. We're going to sing a song called In Christ Alone. I don't know what you need to do or how you need to do it. But if you're in here and you're saying, hey, I have somehow, I've messed this up. I'm willing to pray for you. Pastor Willie's willing to pray for you. Pastor Peter's willing to pray for you. We're willing to pray with you this morning. And pray together with you to say, hey, God, I give my life back to you completely. And so if you want that, you come find us or you come here to the front or you stay after. We will pray with you. But ultimately this is about you making a decision to say Jesus I surrender. I surrender. Father God, I I don't mean to be hard just for the sake of being hard. But God, if we miss this, then one day we will stand before you thinking we've done it. And then will come the shock. Even though we cried out, Lord, Lord. Because we somehow thought we could save ourselves by what we said or what we did. That day will come the shock that no, truly we are only saved in Jesus. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would go through us right now. You would examine us. You would reveal to us if there's any place in us that is not fully given to you, that we would do that today. I pray for the person in here that's maybe tempted to say, no, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait. I pray that you would convict them. You would draw them. That they would be reconciled to you. May your will be accomplished here. Only your will, Jesus. Only your will. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.